Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from the Find Your Great Work interview series. Here's your host, MBS. I'm really excited about this next interview that I'm about to share with you. You know, one of the things we talk about at Box of Crowns all the time is how to help people do less good work and more great work. And that's a very fine model. People really like it. But certainly one of the things that comes up all the time is, look, it's all very well to define your great work, to aspire to that great work, to attempt to get going on it. But to do that, you really need to recognize the here and the now, where you're at at the moment, which for most of us is actually too much good work, too much good work, too much bad work as well. And so one of the questions that I like to ask myself, and I always look for thought leaders around, is this one. How can you get to the next level? How do you jump up a level? How do you level up? And it's such a good, juicy question. And I think one of the more interesting places to look at is not just strategies for getting up the S-curve. You're going to hear about the S-curve in just a minute. But it's also about understanding what are the things that pull you to and keep you stuck in your current good work. The stuff that's okay, but it's not truly you stepping forward, you reaching your full potential, you really taking the next leap up to the next level. So this is why I'm so excited about this interview, because it's with Whitney Johnson. Now, she is a leading thinker on driving corporate innovation through personal disruption. In fact, you know, one of her early colleagues, and I guess in some ways it might be a mentor for her, is a guy called Clayton Christensen. He's actually been interviewed by me on this podcast. And Clayton Christensen is most known for his idea of disruptive innovation. And what Whitney Johnson has done is taken this idea of disruptive innovation and kind of applied it to individual self-management. And it's really the theme of her new book, which is called Disrupt Yourself. Now, Whitney is also the author of a previous book called Dare, Dream, Do. And she's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. So she's really recognized as a thought leader. In fact, she's been on the Thinkers 50 list for the last couple of times it's come out. That's a highly aspirational list to be getting on. She's also been uh, listed by Fortune as one of the 55 most influential women on Twitter. She's probably one of the most 55 influential people on Twitter. So this is a great conversation. We really get into some of the strategies about how to get to the next level. We talk about failure and why that's important. We talk about how do you know what your next level might be? How do you figure out that? We also even have a good conversation about how do you know when to stay and how do you know when to go? So all of this is coming at you any moment now, part of my interview with Whitney Johnson, author of Disrupt Yourself. So Winnie, it's great to be talking to you and we're going to get right into this conversation about how do you get to the next level? And I think before we look at getting to the next level, because obviously uh, both of your books, The Dare, Dream, Do, and your newest book, Disrupt Yourself, are all about getting yourself to that next level. But before you start that journey, I'm curious to kind of look at what keeps people stuck in the here and now. If you're kind of at a certain place, and you're finding it hard to get out of that. What are, what are the factors that might keep you kind of glued to where you are? I think there are two factors that keep you stuck. I mean, there are probably more, but two that really stand out to me. One is we're comfortable, and the other one is we're scared. Mm. Um, so I think one of the things that can happen is that we can be very comfortable where we are. We've worked really hard to get to this place of potentially power, a certain level of prestige, for example, and it feels really good to be there. And so we think, ah, I think I want to stay. Why Why would I start all over again? And so I think that's one of this sort of comfort mm. complacency. I, I think the bigger one, though, because I think every human being does have this 
somehow innate desire to move forward is fear. There is this sense that if we um, try something new, it won't feel comfortable anymore. And that is a very scary place to be is to say, I'm going to try to do something that I've never done before. And I don't know what that will look like. And I don't know what that will mean for me and my, my own identity. So I think those are the two things that really do hold people back is either we're really comfortable or we're scared or a combination of the two. Well, let's talk about that first one, the comfort piece. I think that's a great insight. And I guess part of my curiosity would be, look, should everybody be always trying to get to the next level? Or is there a place for sitting in comfort, for celebrating what you've achieved and kind of, if you like, harvesting rather than looking for the next field to plow and to plant? You know, how, how, how do you know when you're getting complacently comfortable and how do you know when you should actually be just enjoying the moment? Well, I think it's a both and. Um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is a few years ago, I decided that I was going to run a marathon. In the end, I did not run the marathon because I realized it was a dream I wanted to date, not that I wanted to marry. <laughs> the process of doing that, I did get up to the point where I had done training for like 16 miles. So mm. I was really proud of the fact that I did that. But the lesson that I learned in the process of that was this whole idea of interval training, that you don't run 16 miles you run and then you walk and then you run and then you walk. And I think there's a similar theme or idea here when it comes to moving forward, that there are times when we're uh, disrupting ourselves and then there are times where we're steady or calm. And so there are times when we're climbing our S curve and then there's times where we're on the plateau. And I do think it's important for us to pause at the top of that curve and to survey the vista of what we've achieved, of what we've accomplished, of what we've learned and how it feels. But then there will be a time when it when it's important to jump down to a new curve and to climb up a new mountain into a new vista. So it's it's that ebb and that flow. Um, you know, you're awake, you're asleep, you run and then you walk. And so so you really do need to have both in your life of disrupting and instability and disruption and stability. Yeah, I love it. And so I want to ask you in just a minute about so how what are the clues that it's time to disrupt? It's time to look and become restless again, to to start running if you like. But uh, you mentioned the S-curve. So let's just rewind a little bit on that. You use the S-curve right at the start of the book, Disrupt Yourself, to kind of set up your perspective on disruptive innovation. But perhaps you could talk to us and just set up what is the S-curve and what's that all about? The S-curve was developed um, by E.M. Rogers in 1962. And the initial purpose of this was to help him understand from a mathematical perspective how ideas um, get adopted um, or spread throughout a culture. And so if you can picture in your mind an S, what you'll see is at the very base of the S, it's flat. And what that said is that when an idea um, is new or a product is new, it looks like nothing's happening. You know, you're, you're trying to put your product or idea out into the marketplace, but nothing's really happening. And then typically when you reach 10% penetration of a market, you reach what's called a tipping point and you move into hyper growth. And then again, think about the S in your mind. You move up that sleek, steep back of the S. And then around 90% or saturation, the growth will taper off. And so what I did with this S curve is I said, all right, I think this can actually help us understand the psychology of disruption or the psychology of change. So at the bottom, you go back down to that bottom of that S-curve, you may be putting in a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and it will look like nothing's happening. But in fact, you're building up momentum. 
But if you know that it looks like nothing's happening, that helps you avoid discouragement. Right. And then you move into that steep part of the curve. You start to feel really competent and you're going to feel confident and all your synapses are firing and that you've got a lot of dopamine and a lot of neurotransmitters that are firing off and all the feel good effects of learning. Right. And then at the top of the curve, once you hit that saturation, you know how to do everything, but it's also very likely that you're becoming bored because you're not enjoying learning anymore. And so at that point, at that top of the curve, once things start to feel really, really easy for you, that's one signal that it may be time to jump to a new curve. Another more quantitative way of determining that is if you think about the 10,000 hour rule. Yes. Um, for a job in particular, it would take you about five years to put in 10,000 hours if you're working 40 hours a week. Most mm. people don't work 40 hours, they work <laughs> right. So this it's taking you three or four years. If you've been in the exact same role doing the exact same thing for about four years, you probably are going to want to think about jumping to a new curve, taking on a new role inside of your organization or mixing things up a little bit. And so those are two ways of mm. how you feel you might be a little bit bored. And then also just from a quantitative perspective, how long you've been in a role, those are both two signals that it may be time to try something new. Got it. I love that. So you've got kind of an external validation, which is, look, if you've been learning this sort of thing for three or four years and you're getting close to mastery, then maybe it's time to to move on to whatever's next. Um, and that, that piece about boredom, I think, is a, perhaps even a more powerful clue because I think there is something about... Let me ask you this as a question, Whitney, because I, I struggle with this myself. My guess would be that you and I, for instance, and a bunch of people listening into this podcast are kind of the more restless type. You know, they're like, oh, shiny objects and oh, new thing to master and oh, what's the next challenge? But I'm not sure everybody is wired like that. I think there are some people who go my joy is ongoing mastery. Now, as a, I'm trying to make a connection back to the 10,000 hours and Malcolm Gladwell. And one of the things he says in one of his books, I can't remember which one it is, is looking at the difference between, uh, I think it was Picasso and, uh, was it Matisse? I think it was Matisse. So Picasso is like, oh, I'm going to invent a new style of painting every four years. I'm doing cubism. Oh, I'm done cubism. I'm going to do the blue period. Oh, I'm done blue period. I'm going to do the pink period. <laughs> Um, whereas Matisse, I think it was, basically just painted the same damn apples for his entire career. And he just went, I'm just going to keep painting the apples or I'm going to paint Mont Saint-Victoire, I think it was. And that he really only had a very few uh, topics of painting, but he just went, this is all I do. This is the mastery that I'm pursuing. So I'm not even sure what my question is here. I'm, may okay. Maybe it's the question is, look, is everybody on that quest for mastery or is there a place for sitting in the same place and just doing it again and again and again? It's a great question. And I think there is some element of what our temperament is. And I think that's an interesting, I, I hadn't heard that comparison, so I don't have enough information to opine on that. But what I would say is I do think that there is a human imperative to move forward and we may define what moving forward looks like for each of us. But I think that if you consider the fact that if moving forward does matter, then the question becomes, um, how do you motivate yourself to move forward? Um, there's some really interesting research by Heidi Grant Halverson and Tori Higgins about whether or not we're prevention or promotion focused. Yes. So if we're at the top of a learning curve and we think, okay, it may make sense to move forward. If we're promotion focused, we think, it's time for me to jump into a new curve. Look at all the wonderful, exciting things I'll be able to do when I jump to that curve. And so right. that's promotion focus. The prevention focus person would say, huh, well, there's really no such thing as standing still. And if I stand here, I might actually get pushed off the curve. So maybe I better jump. 
that's prevention focused. And so each one of us has a little bit of promotion, a little bit of prevention, you know, there's a continuum, but we, we can pull out those different ways to motivate ourselves, knowing that we do need to move forward. And if we, and, and then depending on what we need to motivate us, we can pull out those different tools. Got it. Yeah, that's a very useful distinction. I know people listening will be able to figure out, okay, my more promotion and my more prevention, but still the insight is that for all of us, there's going to be some opportunity to move forward to the next thing. So let's imagine that's happening. Let's imagine that everybody's got to the top of their S-curve and they're like, I'm a bit bored or I'm a bit restless or I'm just got ADHD, so everything looks like a new adventure for me. And so you kick down to the bottom of the next S-curve. And I guess my first question would be is like, okay, so how do you know what to pursue? Where do you look? Because it doesn't always become an obvious next step. There may be a range of different possibilities and opportunities. So how do you start off by figuring out, so what's next for me? Well, I think one of the, one of the um, things that's really important is that there's this notion, there's this fantasy really, that we're going to be able to try something new and it's wide open space as a blank page. And, and we think that that's our ideal world. Well, in fact, it's not ideal. And for most of us, the actual reality is that it won't be that way anyway. So all of us are going to have some types of constraints. We're going to have um, a place that we have to live. There may be, you know, a certain uh, amount of money that we have to make. We may only have a certain amount of time on hand in order to make this all happen. So we're working with a certain set of constraints. And even though it may feel like that is not optimal. In fact, those constraints are really, really helpful and important in in helping us figure out what we're going to do next because they limit our choices. And when we have limited choices, what we know is that that gives us more feedback. And the more feedback we have, we get more information about whether or not this is the right curve for us. So I think think that's the first thing I would say is that we already have a lot of information. Like I may say, I'm going to jump to a new curve and I want to be a professional ice skater because that's what I wanted to do when I was a little girl. We all know that there are lots of constraints that tell you that's an actual impossibility. So we don't have as many choices as we like to think that we do. And that's actually a good thing. The second thing I would say, and it's more tactical, is whatever you're going to do, make sure that you're playing to your strengths Mm -hmm. and make sure that those strengths are your distinctive strengths. And what do I mean by that? Well, on your strengths, make sure that they're your superpowers because there is a tendency to want to jump to a new curve and to do something that allows us to learn and get good at something that we're not good at because as Malcolm Forbes said, we tend to undervalue what we are and overvalue what we aren't. Right. So jumping right. to that new curve, we want to do something that we're not good at. I would say you know, resist that tendency and actually focus on bringing your superpowers to that learning curve understanding that you're probably not going to want to because you don't value your superpowers. So that's another element I would say is work within your constraints, number one. Number two, make sure you focus on your strengths, your distinctive strengths then being something that you do well that everybody else around you doesn't. So for example, if you're really great at marketing, you're going to be much more successful being a marketer surrounded by nine people who know how to code as opposed to being one marketer among 10. And then the third thing I would really focus on when you're jumping to that new curve is to figure out how to take on market risk versus competitive risk, meaning play where other people aren't playing. If you have an idea um, or a job that you want to go after and there's 50 people applying for that job, well, the odds of you're getting that job are probably kind of low. But 
if you have an idea for something you want to do and you go out and you create the job and then you're the only person who's applied for that job, you're more likely to get to that job. So recognize that the constraints that you have, lack of time, money, buying, or expertise are actually going to help you on that new curve, play to your strengths, make sure that there are, if at all possible, distinctive strengths, and then look for ways to play where other people aren't playing. And when you apply each of those those variables to jumping to a new curve, you're much more likely to be successful. I love that. Those are three really interesting perspectives. And I want to pick up on the second one, which is about playing to your strengths and your distinctive strengths. And I'm curious to know almost how do you define strengths? Because there's, you know, different people define strengths in different ways. And how do you get a better sense of what your strengths might be? And I ask that in part because when I work with some people around this, because, you know, our, our fundamental model at Box of Grounds is helping people do less good work and more great work. And you could think of great work as that kind of next level uh, that we're talking about or that, that thing that you disrupt good work to get to your, your next piece of great work. And what I see people struggle with when we talk about strengths is kind of assuming that their past experience is indicative of their current strengths. So, you know, I talk to a lawyer. And I talk to unhappy lawyer because there's a lot of unhappy lawyers and you go, okay, let's talk about what your strengths are. And they go, my only strengths are that I know a whole lot about law. And honestly, the thought of trying to build on that is painful rather than exciting. Um, So I'm just curious for you, what do you mean by strengths exactly? And how do you figure out what your strengths actually are? It's a great question. And I, I, what I would call in this instance with this particular lawyer is that that becomes a pay-to-play skill, right? It's something that they know how to do, and it's a competency that gives them the opportunity to play in any given sort of right. role. Um, so some of the strengths and some of the ways that I think about um, this and shorthand methods are is to, number one, think about what makes you feel strong. And this is building on Marcus Buckingham. Exactly, yeah. Of using, um, think about in the course of a given day, the things that make you feel invigorated, inquisitive, and successful. And when you can like examine how you feel when you're doing things, that starts to give you information about what your strengths are. And I, I find it actually really helpful. And I would actually add, and he didn't say this, but think about those moments when you feel either beautiful or handsome or manly, because <laughs> I, I know it sounds funny, but I don't think, I think when you're playing to your strengths, you do feel attractive. And right. I think that's an important thing for us to consider. The other thing that I've discovered recently is think about what your go-to activity is when you're feeling very overwhelmed. And I don't mean like the self-sabotaging, I just ate a quart of Haagen-Dazs ice cream, but the things that like you just say to yourself, if I could just have a day or three hours where I could just do X and then I'll feel in control again. It's very likely that's one of your strengths because your strengths make you feel in control. And when I ask people that question, I find out, some people say, you know, I if I could just dive into my spreadsheets and I could build a discounted cash flow model, I would feel in control. Other people, it's like if I could just, you know, work on social media and connect with people, I would feel in control. Or if I could just go out with friends, like everybody has a different thing. And right. that's another way I think that you could figure out what your strengths are. And the third thing I would suggest is to consider the compliments that you get that you um, dismiss. Um, so that you've heard compliments that you actually hear a lot and you don't even remember what they are because you literally Mm -hmm. for them. And it's because for you, that thing that you do is as natural as breathing. And I, like, I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, I would have people say to me, you're really good at the piano. I hated that compliment more than (laughs) because it was like what defined me. Right. And it didn't seem like it was that hard to do because I had, you know, been playing the piano since I was a little girl. But if I'm willing to sort of say to myself, 
okay, well, if I'm good at this, that means I'm musical. And if I'm musical, then what is that? What are people telling me are some of my strengths? So if you can take again, that compliment that you undervalue because it's what you are, because it's as natural as breathing, it's very likely that that becomes one of your superpowers. And again, back to this idea of what you said of going from good work to great work. I believe, and this is my hypothesis, you cannot do great work unless you're willing to acknowledge and claim and own and use your superpowers. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I, I love your distinctions. I, I also think the Marcus Buckingham definitions about, you know, your strengths are not what you're good at necessarily. It's what energizes, which kind of elevates you rather or makes you feel handsome. Of course, I feel yes. handsome all the time, but that's another a question. Oh, um, well, I want to know your secret because I want to feel, I want to be attractive <laughs> all the time. I'm not sure what it is. It's a, it's a highly robust self-esteem or maybe it's just a delusion that is carrying me through i think it's probably the delusional part of it that's my secret to my success awesome <laughs> <laughs> now i'm going to actually recommend a resource for folks listening in one of the best books i found around strengths and, and kind of figuring out what your strengths are as well as the kind of more general marcus buckingham stuff is it by uh by a book by a guy called dick richards and his the title is is your genius at work and there's probably i think probably almost 20 exercises in that book all kind of a different angle to kind of figure out what your strengths might be. So not even sure if the book's still in print. I, I mean, I've had it for 10 years or so on my shelves, and that's a nice additional resource for people there. And what's great about that is I've never heard of that. So it sounds like a lot of people won't be familiar with that book. Yeah, I think that I, well, it's a good one out there. I, I certainly, you know, I have a lot of books come and go from my bookshelves, but this is one that's managed to stick. Um, so Whitney, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm in the bottom of the S curve. And as you said, the thing about the S-curve is you have to endure a certain amount of time and discomfort and uncertainty before you get to that tipping point and things really start to pick up. And you know, when we talk about great work, we say the, the three attributes you need for great work are focus, courage, and resilience. And it feels to me like in the bottom of that S-curve, the resilience is an important part of how do you hang in there? when part of you is going, I should just quit because this is too hard and too uncomfortable and I don't know what the heck's happening. So for you, what are the, some of the strategies that you know of and you recommend to help people endure the bottom of the S-curve? Well, you, you've just touched on one of them, which is um, this idea of if you know that you're at the low end of the curve, I mean, think about anybody who's ever had a new job. Um, and again, back to the 10,000 hour rule, it's gonna take you somewhere between three and six months to feel like you have any idea whatsoever of what you're doing. Right. And I think one of the ways that you can endure that is just to say to yourself, okay, I know this is gonna happen. This is normal that I feel completely discouraged and I'm completely overwhelmed by new tasks and products and ideas. Uh, so I think that's one thing is just being aware. The second thing is that um, it's important to distinguish between hard and frustrating. Because when it's hard, it's just hard. And you have to, as you said, persevere and focus and keep going and understand that there's going to be a lot of iteration and a lot of experimentation. Um, and that's where the resilience comes in. What I would say is if you're frustrated, then that may be a signal to you that, in fact, you are not playing to your strengths in some ways. And so then it may be something that you need to be aware of. It may be a red flag for you that you're in fact on the wrong curve. But I think most of us have this intuition that if it's just hard, we just have to keep going. And if it's frustrating, we may not be playing to our strengths or um, taking the right kinds of risks. 
Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the, the thing to do is have the space to reflect on these very questions that you're bringing up so that you make your best guess rather than kind of just move into a quick, I'm going to give up or I'm going to keep going without kind of going. So is this the right path? And is this playing to my strengths? And should I endure this longer? And how much longer? And how would I know whether I'm succeeding or not? So all of those great questions, the real power is actually giving yourself the time to create that moment of reflection there. Right. I think so. And and when you just, something you just said made me think of this again, back to this idea of constraints of, um, you know, when you're at the low end of the curve, you need a lot of feedback and you need it quickly because you want to know how you're doing. Right. And so what I would say is at the low end of the curve, the more constraints you have, the more you have to bump up against things, you're actually getting more information. And so you want to keep going until you have enough information to know that you're not on the right curve. And so, for example, if you had allotted hundred dollars to an activity, then give yourself only 50 and see what happens. And so tighten up the constraints like a skateboarder, like skateboarders get, you know, they're quick learners because they get incredibly fast and useful feedback. So think about how do I get more feedback more quickly so that I can figure out if it's hard or I need to change curves. You know, one of the metaphors I really love that I read through Jim Collins is his take on when you're starting something like this, when you're probably at the bottom of the S curve, you need to fire bullets and then fire a cannonball. And, you know, his metaphor is that you fire your bullets to actually get that quick feedback that you're talking about to kind of figure out where the real target is. Because at the start, you're kind of guessing a bit. But once you figure out what the real target is, that's when you fire the cannonball. That's where you commit. And his perspective is that people either fire their cannonballs way too soon. You know, it's like, here's the first thing I've thought of. I'll just put everything into it and hope it comes off. Yeah. Or too late because they go, I found the target. But now I don't have the courage to kind of commit to it. I kind of just kind of am a bit tepid about jumping in there. Mm, that's a great metaphor. I love that. We're running out of time just because it's a, such an interesting topic, Whitney. But I do want to ask you just quickly, talk to me a little bit about failure. One of your chapters is called Give Failure Its Due. And what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that. When I first uh, thought about writing this chapter, I had written it as um, putting failure in its place, like put it down. And I realized that um, failure, it's a little bit of a double entendre where on the one hand, we have to recognize that whenever we're climbing a curve and we're trying something new, that failure is integral to that process. And so we have to give it its due in the sense of acknowledging that it has a place in the process of learning. So that was one thing that I was trying to to accomplish in in talking about failure in that way. The second thing I was trying to accomplish is that when we fail, and I'm not talking necessarily about the low end of the curve where we're iterating and dating dreams, but when we're moving along a curve and we get pushed off it and it hurts and it's painful, is that it's really important that we grieve. I think sometimes we just say, dust yourself off and get back up. But the fact is, is that we have to grieve because it's that emotion, that full full range of emotion that we feel of having committed to and loved a dream that we had that will give us the passion to start on a new dream. And if we try to sublimate that sadness, we risk losing that passion. So I think that was the second thing that I really wanted people to acknowledge is this importance of of grieving. And then obviously the first piece is understanding that it's an integral part of this process of moving uh, moving up learning curves and learning and progressing. Lovely. Winnie, this has been a great conversation. I love that we kind of took the question, so how can you get to the next level, thinking about you, me, the people who are listening in? And so much of this conversation has been really beautifully informed by your new book, Disrupt Yourself. 
So Whitney, for people who want to find out more about you and the work that you do, where do they find you? I think the two easiest places are you can go to my website at WhitneyJohnson.com. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Johnson Whitney, and that's probably the easiest starting place. And then you can obviously email me at Whitney at WhitneyJohnson.com. Perfect. Whitney, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your time today. We hope you enjoyed this Best of MBS interview. Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.